Stories connect us as humans. A well-told story can motivate and inspire us. Storytelling is the ultimate superpower. Be The Drop is a weekly podcast that investigates how to tell stories that engage. Join me, Amelia Veal, on our shared journey to become better storytellers. In episode 261, fellow podcast host James Perrin leads a panel discussion with Marie Lowes, Chris Andrew and George Papu. The conversation is an informed and passionate look into issues impacting our food systems, including sustainability, environmental impact and Indigenous participation. Collectively, they provide ideas on how we can address these issues. This interview was recorded at PauseFest 2021, and as a media partner of the event, it is my absolute pleasure to share these incredible discussions to help continue their positive impact. This is a collective version of Be The Drop, recorded live from PauseFest. Are you starting a podcast? Narrative Marketing delivers a full range of podcast production and training options. Visit narrativemarketing.com.au or hit the link in the show notes for more details. Hello, everybody. Welcome. My name is James Perrin. I am the moderator for this session. I would just like to start by acknowledging that I am on Bundjalung country up in the northern part of New South Wales. And our panelists today, as George, Chris and Marie, as, as, I, as you guys come on to speak, it would be awesome if you could just acknowledge what country and where you are as well. So yeah, what are we doing today? So my name's James. I'm, I'm a chemical and environmental engineer. I'm, I'm a sustainability manager. I've been working in the B Corp good business movement for a number of years now. And I've also launched a podcast called The Overview Effect, uh, which is all about taking a big picture perspective on uh, nature and humanity and good business and environment and community and all that good stuff. So I'm super happy to have this panel of amazing people here today. And really, I guess if I were to, the theme today is, is about our food system, the future of our food system. So you're going to hear from three amazing guests. First, we're going to have Chris Andrew from Black Duck Foods. He's the general manager of Black Duck Foods. Uh, and then we're going to hear from George Pepu, who's the co-founder of Vow Food. And then we're going to hear from Marie Lowe's, who is an actress, change maker. You may know her as Dirt Girl. And she's also got a, an awesome new series called Eat Dirt coming out soon. So we might just crack into it. And Chris, I like to start with uh, a bit of a big question. Have you had a moment in your life that has shaped you and your view of the world and where you are and what you're doing today? Well, first up, I'm in Ghani from Yadigal country. So I'm based here in Sydney and g'day to all those mobs up in Bunjalung and, and elsewhere. And if I was sitting down on the farm on Ewan country, I'd say water. It's interesting. I think there's probably two experiences that sort of shaped parts of the approach that I think we can adapt. One is sort of hiking up with a, a bunch of school kids up around the snowy mountains and sort of as our alpine district, it's really one of our most vulnerable environments. And it was that that sort of makes you realise temperature variations, the influence of climate change. That means that one or two metre buffer in our alpine area, that disappears and we don't get that back. And that's tangible. I mean, again, there's a simplistic sort of aspect about what the problem is. Black duck foods is a reaction to a number of different problems, not only just in our food system, but in the way that Australia acknowledges traditional owners and First Nations people. 
Black Duck was founded by Bruce Pascoe. Some people might know me, wrote a book, I gather. And out of that, it sort of, it formed an organisation that at the heart of it tries to do a couple of different things. And we can certainly dwell on the problems that we're trying to challenge. But I think what we're looking at is we are trying to address the inequity in terms of Indigenous people participating in the food system. Our First Nations people get about 1% of the revenue from the bush tucker industry. And so there's a 99% getting stolen. So that's fairly inequitable. And so in sort of response to that, we're bringing back traditional agricultural systems and food systems, both within our own sort of farm area, because often you've got to, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk. But also we're looking at what do we do outside the farm gate? And there's an awful lot of opportunity for systemic change and catalyzing this narrative around our traditional food system. We have a food system that's racist in so much as we have a food system that gives 65,000 years of history a novel classification in our Food Act. And so it's a starting point. And and whether it's conscious or not, we have already sort of starting to marginalise 65,000 years of culture, 65,000 years of food story, 65,000 years of a story that didn't try and fight between agriculture and the environment. It's time to sort of stand back and actually start celebrating the greatest asset we have in Australia, which is the oldest living surviving culture in the world. And let's start acknowledging that and let's start paying fair and proper due to what that should be giving us because it's it's a really inclusive model. Yet we really like to marginalise it. We really like to hone in on the deficits. We really like not to give Indigenous voice to Indigenous issues. We like to place a colonial sort of narrative on everything and it distorts it. Beautifully said, Chris. And my first thought when I first heard of Black Duck Foods and your work and using native and Indigenous ingredients probably did jump to, oh, cool, how can we start using those ingredients in the food, in the food network, which is immediately trying to mine that resource in the same system in which we operate, trying to use that essentially for our capitalistic, trying to colonise those, those grains. So how do you combat that? How do you have a, a different approach around that? They said, you know, we like to welcome people on. We, you know, we point out the fact that scientists, for by way of example, play a role of helping fill a gap where First Nations people were denied the opportunity to do what most people do in country, you know, adaptive management. They were denied 250 years of adapting practices and adapting stories to a changing climate, to a changing environment. So there's an opportunity to help support that. And so First Nations people don't need anybody to tell them how to be First Nations people. And we always keep trying to drag First Nations people into a non-Indigenous cultural framework. This is our business framework. We're a non-Indigenous business, but we want to set up our Indigenous arm. Or, we, you know, if you want to do business, you've got to come to us. And and, and we keep setting up frameworks that are, that are preventative and they're non-sharing and they're non-respectful. But, you know, the opportunity is is immense for Australia. I think it's such an inclusive opportunity to bring in all the different facets, to adopt a bit more of a holistic approach to our food systems. You know, we, we've got food systems that are thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. We, you know, we can knock the socks off anything they, they think about they've got in Europe. Now, our, our food story goes back to when stories began. Mm. 
Chris, it's it's super exciting hearing you talk, and I, I I could just keep asking you questions. And I love your approach. It's it's really not just about what you guys are doing, but how. I'm going to jump to George next. George, hello. Can you let us know what country you're on, and I guess something that shaped where you are today. Absolutely. Hey everyone, I'm coming at you from Gadigal country. I found it really difficult to think about a single moment. I think about this sort of string of experiences I've had over decades, which is just around the act of sharing food. It sounds so simple, but wherever you go, no matter how far away from your native culture you are, there's always that opportunity to sit down with humans and share food and share those emotional experiences together. Whether you're sitting on the Mongolian step and sharing a mutton stew, or you're in a, a Pacific island sharing baked cassava, or in New York sharing bagels, is there is this incredible humanity to being able to share and experience food. And looking at a lot of new food tech innovations, it feels like some of the humanity and some of the joy is being stripped away as we try to industrialize it, even with the best intentions. Mm-hmm. And so probably the biggest formative moment for me has been trying to work out how do you balance these new technologies with that important universal cultural experience of food and sharing that with one another. Yeah, that's a very good question. And I could pose that straight back to you. But I, I guess I would, I'd, I'd love to learn a bit more about the work you're doing. And I guess what, what was the impetus, you know, what, what are the social or environmental um, issues that you're trying to impact through your, your work? I could not be more different to Chris. Chris is going for <laughs> millennia of heritage and I'm like, let's grow meat in labs. So I, I'm uh, one of the founders and the CEO of our, we're a cultured meat company. And what that means in its simplest form is the meat we eat today is made up of muscle tissue from animals. In that there's mostly muscle, fat and connective tissue. What we do is we go to animals and we take a small biopsy and isolate the cells that are responsible for repairing muscle, fat and connective tissue and then place them in an environment which mimics being inside of the animal so we can grow meat without needing to grow the rest of the animal. And that is that is sort of the starting point. But I've had the privilege of working on problems in our food system for my whole career, so well over 10 years now. The deeper I dug into any given food production system, whether it's uh, animal agriculture, grains, horticulture, there are just layers and layers of problems. And when you start to look at where are the most impactful changes going to come or where are the biggest sort of bottlenecks in our food system, the way we produce meat is hands down the largest bottleneck. We really can't scale extensive grazing like we mostly produce meat in Australia to the level of the demand that we have coming up over the next couple of decades. So the only possible way we can meet demand is through more intensive agriculture, more feedlotting, more sow stalls, more inhumane practice that is environmentally unfriendly and gives rise to a whole range of diseases that we want nothing to do with. And so once you sort of accept that, then it becomes a question of, well, what's going to complement animal agriculture? What are the things that are going to exist alongside that? Or what are the things which are going to change people's behavior? Uh, And cultured meat is this kind of holy grail in my view, where it's still the things we like about animals. It's still the same biology of muscle fat and connective tissue but it's produced in a way which deals with the biggest concerns and the biggest hesitations around consuming animals. Uh, And so that's kind of the impetus. Why start a company when there are others doing this? Is frankly, I thought they weren't being imaginative enough and weren't being ambitious enough is just imitating what we have today and what animals produce so efficiently. 
is just not going to change the behavior of billions of people the way we need to, is we have to be producing different things. Uh, and that opens up a whole range of new challenges, uh, but also the most important opportunity that we have on the planet. There's literally nothing else you can work on today which sits in that category of really interesting and complicated technology really huge global impact that can literally impact every human on the planet and is also something that you're able to give to individual people and be part of that experience of their day-to-day -day and part of their enjoyment of their life is there is absolutely no other class of technology that you can be working on which gives you those things super interesting and if you can just give us a quick like paint a picture in someone's mind so you're saying you're not just trying to recreate chicken or you're not just trying to what what would be a what what sort of product would you ultimately love to be able to put out to the world there are so many options a couple that i come back to as someone who loves functionality and food one is the idea of blending cells from different species to create otherwise impossible nutritional profiles think of kangaroo muscle for lean protein with salmon fat for omega-3 and maybe some beef liver in there for micronutrient density no fish or mammal can replicate that uh, nutritional profile the other is just sheer functionality. We have a library of cells from more than 11 species now. We can go through and pick all the cells which have the highest L-tryptophan content, mix them together and make something, make a meat product which helps you get to sleep. There's just limitless opportunities to re-engineer this food from the ground up to create experiences and to create value propositions which would have been unimaginable even a few years ago. You weren't wrong when you said you're pretty much the polar opposite of what Chris is trying to do, but that's the whole point of having a diverse panel here. So thank you for that. Um, Marie, long time no see. <laughs> a whole 24 hours, James. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you were up here on Bunjalung Country yesterday, but where are you now? And I guess, have you got a story that you can share with us around what shaped your perspective and, and led you to what you're trying to do today? Sure. So I'm on a Wabakul Waramai country here and I grew up on Gambangye country, Yeagle and Bunjalan country. And wherever I am, I know that I'm on land where the sovereignty was never ceded and I'm listening to the millennia old and evolving legacies of cultivation, innovation, loving, learning, listening, all of that. So, yeah, I acknowledge the ancestors on Awabakal more in my country, as well as up there where I was just with you. So, as I said, I grew up on the northern rivers uh, with paddocks to the horizon and we would have cow pat fights. And I don't remember existing in this world where I wasn't amongst nature. But if we're talking about a moment of immense awe or surrender or a moment of knowing that we are nature as human animals. I think about being in Argentina at Iguazu Falls, where there's an intersection of three rivers and it comes out at a point called La Gargantua, which means the throat. And I remember standing there next to my then boyfriend, now husband, and the immense power that I was in the presence of humbled me. And I remember thinking, and it was like a completely random thought, I remember thinking, it wouldn't matter if I died right now. If I fell in, it wouldn't matter because I just felt so small and so at one with how magnanimous the power was and how interconnected I was with it. Yeah, so that's a, a really profound moment of awe that 
resonates with me when I read your question. Yeah. And was it those kind of moments like that, the connection with nature that, that led you down a path of wanting to be a, a change maker and to do what you're doing, which is telling stories and sharing these kinds of ideas with the world? Yeah. So I hang out at the intersection of um, environmental education mental health and media and storytelling and definitely the fact that I don't see myself as above nature I see us as all part of one fabric on this planet you know that nature thrives on biodiversity and so do we as humans and that's part of why the the culture of othering and domination and depletion and colonization has been and continues to be so destructive for all of us but what has really led me to where I am right now is the amount of time I've spent on country with traditional owners and with farming communities. And what I realised is that those diverse communities, and I mean diverse within themselves as well, are among our first climate refugees in Australia. And so what I realised is that I wanted to hang out with with people and, and help contribute to the cultivation of resilience rather than coming in after the fact when trauma has already been caused by these cascading disasters that we're seeing and will continue to see in parallel with the ongoing mechanisms of colonization and and domination and depletion. I know a bit about the type of work that you do and, and, and some of the stuff that you'll be launching soon, but can you share with us from that, you know, what, what sort of projects what sort of actions what sort of impacts are you trying to have well first and foremost i'm um constantly trying to listen to be a better listener you know whether it's to george or chris on this panel whether it's to your questions when i'm on country with traditional owners whether i'm with a farmer who's you know telling me that there used to be 128 orchards in their area and now there's three it's really listening to the nuances and the tensions that are at play because we've really simplified our level of understanding of each other and that definitely services this the dominant systems you know but At the moment, I'm working on a project called Eat Dirt, which is really about connecting the different different communities that are trying to work or already are working to write a better story for the future. So, for example, with topsoil, one part of our ecological, you know, (laughs) fabric, we have about 60 years of topsoil remaining. And that's before food chaos or collapse, if we're continuing to grow our food in soil or if we're continuing to eat eat plants and foods that grow in soil. So we want to meet people who are um, growing the solutions to a better future. We want to meet traditional owners, scientists, innovators, and, you know, those labels intersect. They're not separate. And we also want to work out how we can cultivate suburban farmers, suburban feeders, suburban eaters, because if we keep only talking to people who think like us as change makers, then we're not going to affect the necessary changes in the window of time that we have because we are at a tipping point in biodiversity and in humanity. And we need to work, essentially, we need to be able to to harness both millennia-old and evolving legacies of knowledge and, and innovation, because what we know for certain is that the future is full of uncertainty and we're going to be faced with challenges that we have never faced as humanity, no matter where we come from or who we are. So I think it's a time to to really listen, to really open up. And if something doesn't land, then that's okay. But let's listen to what's possible because the parameters are changing constantly, the parameters of what is possible. Mm. And 
as someone who has, you know, you've traveled around, you've done so many different shows and presentations to all sorts of different groups and community groups. Have you sensed a shift over time? I mean, we talked about connection with food and how that shaped our perspective. Do you see things staying the same or do you see things changing and people's approaches to food and, and sustainable and impactful food changing? It's definitely changing. Even if you look at the last 18 months, we, we've had drought and then we had fires and then we've had a pandemic. That is an undeniable sequence of cascading disasters and people are unsettled. We, we feel it, you know. If you went to the, the grocery store, you could feel it. If we get on a bus, we can feel it. People are unsettled. But the people that I hang out with, people who are connected to what's possible. And I think if we only get our information and connection from online or from mainstream media, we are missing out on that, you know, on, on knowing what's possible. Because as soon as you meet people, as soon as you actually are sitting down and having a couple with someone or walking around their garden or, you know, sitting on the ground with them, you hear so many good stories and we need to be letting that into ourselves more. We need to be listening more to to that because absolutely I see a lot of change. I still have a lot of concern for the planet, but and I and I know exploitation continues every day in many ways, but I certainly see hope and I have spent the last decade with the next generation with children and I know when I look into their eyes that they have a huge and profound amount of love for this planet. Amazing. All three of you, I just want to say thank you, not only for your time and sharing super quick snippets of what you do. Uh, you know, we all as humans connect with food, like you, you guys have all touched on, it brings us together. It has moments that shape our lives and I, you're all doing amazing work. And even though it's a very diverse panel, there's a bit of diversity of thought. I think what you're all kind of saying is our food system is important and we want it to be better whether that's through storytelling and connecting people, whether that's through technological advances or whether that's through taking a different approach to social interaction and society as a whole. So thank you all of you for your amazing work. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that. This is a Narrative Network podcast.